0: Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and today we're dealing with pro-gay slogans. These are common and powerfully deceptive slogans. We will consider them, analyze them, and refute them. This is part five of a seven-part series on homosexuality, where we speak the truth in love, Each part in this series deals with different issues ranging from theology to science to philosophy to psychology. I recommend checking out the whole series. We are in a time and culture where the church needs clarity on this issue and my goal is to help provide that clarity. Today we're going to talk about slogans that we often hear from the pro-gay perspective and a rational response to those slogans. I think that should be very helpful because a lot of the stuff I've covered so far you 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 don't generally encounter, but these slogans you encounter a lot. The first slogan I want to deal with t- tonight is this slogan, you have no right to tell two consenting adults what they can and can't do in the bedroom. I've heard this one myself. Anybody have you heard that before? And If we're honest, I think the first time you hear something like this, for most people, it probably takes you aback. You're like, well, I mean, you're right. I don't, I don't really want to tell people what they can and can't do in their bedrooms. Like that doesn't seem like my place, but I want to point something out. Many of the slogans are like this one. In reality, this is completely irrelevant because we are not trying to tell people what they can and can't do in their bedroom. This is actually not the issue. We are not advocating for the banning, And penalizing of homosexual behaviors. That's not what we're doing. It misrepresents our position as Christians. And in, in where we are now, this is what we're doing. We are saying people shouldn't do this. Not they can't. It's simply a shouldn't shouldn't. It's a moral judgment. I might see a parent who treats their child in a way and I say, you shouldn't do that in my mind, I'm going, I disapprove of that style of parenting, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to like go forcibly stop them. So it's not a can't, can issue. It's a should, shouldn't issue. It's about morality, not legality. Well, hopefully we'll talk about the legality issue in a little bit, but, but even that doesn't apply. Um, our concern at the moment isn't about what people can and can't do, it's just what they should and shouldn't do. So this sometimes is related, and I've heard people quote this, this verse in Hebrews 13.4 that says, and I quote, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. So the marriage bed is therefore undefiled. And then the, the thing they quote this for is to say, therefore, that a, um, a, a bedroom event is automatically holy. And anything that happens in the marriage bed is automatically perfectly holy and clean. And I think we're stretching that verse really thin when you try to say something like that, actually. But could this verse be any, any more clear? Um, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. The, which bed? The marriage bed. So the bed of a committed heterosexual couple who's made a lifelong commitment to it. This is what's undefiled. The Bible sees every other type of sexuality as fornication or sexual immorality, and we've discussed that in detail, but that's why that verse shouldn't be used, and those people never quote the rest of the verse. Let me read the whole verse to you. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So it's clearly drawing a distinction between a marriage sexual relationship and every other kind of sexual relationship. So this is this is actually in support of our point. This confuses the marriage bed being sacred with just beds being sacred. To consenting adults what they can and can't do in the bedroom, um, here's the thought. Is it true that there are some things which are good in private but should not be done in public? Yeah. You know, showering. That's good in private. I hope we all, you know, partake of that public ritual, or I should say public uh, societal rituals that we, that we shower, most of, most of us do, that's good. Childbirth, childbirth's a wonderful thing, but we, did, we don't do it like, you know, on the street corner, if we can avoid it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and marital relations are a good and wonderful thing, but they're not to be done in public. However, private same-sex acts aren't automatically therefore moral because they're in private. And I can think of several things that can happen in a bedroom that are still immoral, even though they're done in private. Abuse in a bedroom is not better than abuse out of a bedroom. It's just abuse. Making meth in a bedroom is not better than making, a, making meth in a public area. It doesn't become good because it's private. We understand that logic, right? This is, this is clearly a truth of reality, is that things are not automatically good because they're in private. Um, consenting abuse in private is not good either. We would look at two consenting abusers who are hurting each other violently, but they, but they, for some reason they get some joy out of this, and we would say something's wrong with the wiring in your brain right now. Like, something is wrong with what you're doing. This is not okay. And just because you consent, it doesn't therefore make it Okay. Bedrooms do not change the moral quality of behavior. Even though it's true that some things should not be done in public, those things are good whether or not there's a bed. <laughs> they're, just, they're, just, they're, they're good things that should be done in private. So that doesn't apply. So you have no right to tell two consenting adults what they can and can't do in the bedroom. Well, sort of true, sort of false. You know, I mean, if they're cooking meth, then we should, as society, say you can't do that in the bedroom or anywhere else for that matter. Um, If they're being abusive or or something like that, or doing like, let's say that there's an incestuous relationship, I think the society has a right to say that's wrong. You need to stop. Uh, Now, do we penalize it or not? Do we, you know, all that sort of, that's another, other legal concerns, but we do, there is a right and wrong about things. And, uh, and we're still, we're not saying what's wrong uh, or what you can and can't do. We're simply saying what's morally wrong. We're disapproving. That's really, if you think about it, that's what most of what I've discussed this whole time is just to say, see, and that's why we disapprove. That's pretty much what we're, what we're going for here as Christians is the disapproval of homosexual behavior, uh, but it enrages, it enrages our society because of the societal brainwashing that's gone on about this issue. Uh, the next one that I hear a lot is, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Raise your hand if that's been said to you about an issue before. You're having a normal conversation with someone, you tell them something, it's a moral judgment you make, and they go, who are you to judge? And then they quote, who knows what passage they quote? Matthew 7, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. They always quote the King James Version on that one. I don't know why. The person who says to you, don't judge, is judging you. This, in and of itself, should show you that the philosophy of don't judge is unlivable. Because you can't enforce it. (laughs) Because it requires judgment. That's the only way that person could could say you're judging is by making a judgment about what you're doing and then condemning you for it or calling you out on it. So the person inevitably who says don't judge is the judgmental one. And they obviously don't think it's wrong to judge because they're doing it. So what they're really saying is that you're wrong and they're right. They're the one making the judgment here. You're, I'm right, you're wrong. And who are you to judge? But I can judge. It's tolerance, but it only runs one direction. (laughs) This tolerance is a one-way street ultimately though this I have to point out is a bully tactic when people say don't judge who are you to judge this is just a bully they're bullying you it's really rude it's very in in, in honesty it's very hypocritical perhaps they think it's wrong to disapprove of what someone else is doing well then why are they disapproving of what you're doing Perhaps they think it's wrong to make judgment calls about others. Then why are they making a judgment call about you? Again, it is only those who disagree with them who are not allowed to judge. This is irrational and ultimately hypocritical and very much a bully thing. This tolerance goes only one way. You then become the villain. So as a Christian, with this scripture being quoted, I want to now address the verse itself in Matthew 7, and you could flip there if you like, and we could look at it in context. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Are we supposed to make judgments? or make no judgments at all? Or does God simply call us to not forget our place when we make judgments? I think it's the second one. Matthew 7 verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged, and then there's more. That wasn't all he said. Jesus continued, For with what judgment you use, or with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, speaking about fairness. Verse 3, and why do you look, and now he applies it, at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye as though there's this like two by four sticking out of your eye. So they may have laughed when Jesus said this. It was, it's kind of hyperbole. He's like, there's a, there's a giant plank sticking out of your eyeball and you're looking at the speck in your brother's eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. Set it down. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what is it he wants us to do? Judge yourself first and then help that person. Don't just go, hey, you have a speck, but who am I to judge? No, it's like you have a speck. You're going, let, me get, let me deal with my issues so I can come help you with yours. We're actually to be actively involved in helping others with their problems. Now, this might be seen as self-righteous, but that's the whole point. That's Jesus is avoiding the self-righteous attitude of not dealing with me first. That's what this is about. It's not about never judge. It's about how you judge. There are three types of judgment the Bible says we should not do. One is a judgment where we reinvent morality to suit ourselves. In Isaiah 520, listen to these words. God says, woe to those who call evil good and call good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness. They, they switch morality around. They reinvent morality. Woe to them. This is actually what those who say don't judge are often doing. The ideal behind the idea behind who are you to judge? Who are you to make this judgment call? Usually what I see behind that is that person saying we get to invent our own morality. So I can reinvent morality to sort of suit my worldview and my position rather than discovering God's morality. So they're switching good for evil. They're doing the wrong kind of judging at that point. The second kind of judgment we're not supposed to do is to hypocritically ignore my own issues. That's what the Matthew 7 passage was dealing with, to hypocritically ignore my own issues. Galatians 6.1 also talks about this, consider yourself first lest you also be tempted, you know, before you go to help a brother out. But then it commands you to help out a brother. Who's, who's fallen in sin or has sin issues, rather than just to ignore it or walk by. This is why we're called to judge ourselves first and then to rightly apply judgment to others. The third type of judgment not to do is uh, to judge beyond what I know and beyond what God has declared. In other words, to make just assumptions about things that I, I really have no basis to make this assumption. Paul gives a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 4-5 when he talks about his ministry and he says, as far as I know, my ministry is legit. <laughs> And then he goes, but, you know, I don't know of anything against me, but I judge nothing before the time. And ultimately, it'll all be made clear when when Christ brings perfect and clear judgment to it. So he he makes judgments based on what he knows, but then he stops at a certain point and goes, I don't really know beyond. Here's my gray area. I don't know this, so I'm just going to leave it alone. This, however, is not a case for don't judge in the issue of homosexuality because God has made sure this is not a gray area. It's very clear. It's very black and white, very crystal clear that this is a sin issue in in every possible scenario. And so, um, so we would actually be judging switching evil for good if we say it's good. We're actually going directly against the scripture in multiple ways by doing that. And so those are three ways we're not to judge, but we are called to judge in certain ways. One, we're called to agree with God. You know, that's what the word confession means. To confess, if you translate it sort of right in English, it means to speak the same or like to parrot, to repeat after me, so to speak. I'm agreeing with God. If I confess, I'm saying, God, you're right about that. You're right about that. So when I say, God says in the scripture, homosexuality is wrong, and I'm just saying, I agree, I confess, it's sin. So that is something we're called to do. Everyone's called to confess. In fact, it's part of getting saved is coming back to God's views of morality. and and admitting the sin of sin. Another way we're to judge is we're to call evil evil and good good. (laughs) So we are, woe to those who don't do that, who flip it around, but we are actually called to do this. Hebrews 5.14 talks about this. It says that those who are of full age or mature Christians, this is Hebrews 5.14, that is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both evil and good that mature Christians are lauded or or saying, hey, this is a indicator that you're a mature believer, you can notice the difference between good and evil. You discern that's evil, that's good. That's not judgment in the negative sense, it's judgment in the positive sense. You're just, you call evil evil, you call good good, and you can tell the difference, that's a mature believer. An immature believer often is not like this, and those who neglect their Bibles year after year those who go, unfortunately, to some churches where they don't really teach the Bible, they just kind of give heart, I mean, I love heartwarming. Everybody wants their heart warmed. (laughs) But all they do is heartwarm. but they don't do it necessarily with the actual teaching of the word. These people often are dull and they're unable to discern the evil and the good. And so they sometimes walk in confusion and make sometimes very bad life decisions simply because the black and whites of scripture are not clear to them. Now, but you might ask, Are we called to judge publicly though? Or should it just be private? Should I just, I know it's wrong. Like a lot of people do on this issue of homosexuality. Like, well, like I know it's wrong, but you know, that's just, that's what I think. And I, I I believe it's wrong, but that's just like in my bubble, in my little zone, here's the me zone. But I don't want to put that on anybody else or try to convince others. Is that what scripture wants? Well, the constant example throughout the entire Bible of prophets, apostles, and Jesus himself is to go into the culture and world around you and confront the most obvious wrongs of that world and preach righteousness. Noah is lauded for being a preacher of righteousness. For being like, hey, that's right, that's wrong. That's right, that's wrong. Um, John, the Baptist, people came to him and he like targeted their specific sin issues when they came to him. The tax collectors show up and they go, what should we do? And he goes, how about you don't extort How about you don't take more money than you're supposed to? The centurions come, they're like, what should we do? And they're like, you want to repent? All right, you know what you need to do? You need to stop bullying people. You need to stop oppressing people and using your authority wrongly. So he like specifically targeted their sensitive sin issues. That's what he did. This is normal for the apostles. Paul walks into Athens and he sees all these gods and he gives them a nice long speech where he tells them that they're all false. And so he targets the specific issues of the day. And that's what uh, part of what the gospel is, is targeting the sin issues of the day, showing them that, you know, bringing awareness of sin so that you might bring the, the salve and the, and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Because if there's no awareness of a need for a savior, if there's no symptoms of an illness to point out, then there's, there's no need for a cure. And so it's part of the gospel. It's a very important part. Ephesians 5:11 says it this it very clearly. Ephesians 5:11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Just plain out straight out telling us expose unfruitful works of darkness. So we are actually called to make this kind of discernment, this kind of judgment, which is why I did this series. I'm like, I really feel responsible as as much as it might be uncomfortable in some ways to expose this confusing issue and make make it clear based on what Scripture teaches. So that's why we're doing it. So we're not judging in the sense of making it bad by our judgment. We're simply acknowledging that something's bad. So so those who say uh, don't judge. Are judging (laughs) and they're asking an unlivable standard of just you it's a one-way thing you don't judge but I do I get to judge I get to judge you so I think one way to respond to someone who says this to you is to ask them a question like this do you think rape is evil now I'm gonna bet they're gonna say yes if they don't there's something else wrong that you can then address but I'm I'm gonna bet they're gonna say yes is rape evil then you can turn to them and say, who are you to judge and let them realize that this unlivable, hypocritic standard is what they're doing. And hopefully that that helps. Hopefully that helps. Um, basically don't judge is the response of, I have no argument, but I don't like what you're saying. And it's a bully tactic to make you look bad. So I, I say, try to expose it to them with that question. Is rape evil? Then, oh, it is. Well, who are you to judge? So you can't, you can't live by that standard, it's, it's unrealistic. Another slogan that we hear is, but they love each other. In fact, this is, this is really at the core of a lot of the pro-same-sex uh, uh, pro marriage movement and things like that is, but they love each other, they love each other. There's one problem with this though, they never define the word love. I have no idea what is meant by love in this particular scenario. Their love seems to be generally about the intensity of emotions and desires for each other. Hey, that can be intense, but that is not a good definition of love. You know what, you know where a good definition of love is in the Bible. And in fact, as Christians, we have a specific understanding of love that is revealed to us in the scriptures, where Paul seemed to try to be correcting the false understanding of love of the culture around him, just like we need to continue to do. And so we have that in 1 Corinthians 13. But let me take you to a different passage today. You, you're familiar with that, we've talked about it already. But let me look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the less commonly quoted John 3:16. 1 John 3:16. This is the chief example of love in the Bible. Here's how you can test things. Is is it love? Well, this is what love looks like. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Laying down your life, or self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, that is a great example of love. In fact, by this we know love. He sacrificed himself for the benefit of others. This is so different than the kind of thing they mean when they say, but they love each other. You mean they'll make sacrifices for the other person's benefit? Like not sinning with each other. That would be a good sacrifice to make in this situation. Just like if a, um, if, if a married woman felt the type, that type of love for a man she's not married to. The most loving thing she could actually do for that man is to distance herself radically from that individual because you don't want to you don't want to fall into sin, you sin against God, sin against each other, sin against your marriage. And if that guy really cares about and loves that woman, he's gonna distance himself from her because he's not gonna ruin her marriage and mess up their lives. Because that's not love, that's just desire. Number two, also, so one, we have the chief example of love in 1 John 3:16, self-sacrifice. Two, it is not in the Bible. It is not, 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 not chiefly romantic. Biblical love is not chiefly a romantic thing. I like romance. Okay. i I'm, I'm more romantic probably than my wife is. I, uh, <laughs> this is, this is, this is true, but that is not primarily what love is about in the scripture. It is not chiefly romantic love between a husband and wife. There is far more brotherly love discussed than husbandly, wifely love. There is far more love between fathers and, and, and children and, and this sort of thing. If you think about it, you've got maybe one spouse if you're married at all, but everybody else is your brother and sister. And that's why the Bible constantly exhorts brotherly love. This is, this is the type of love. And I know this now being married, the type of love I really give my wife is really the same kind of love I give to everybody else. It's not really qualitatively that different. We just enjoy another aspect of the relationship that is secure just for marriage. But I give her the same type of love that I give everybody else. Just thoughtfulness, self-sacrifice, concern for her well-being and how she is, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not in and of itself romantic. Flowers are romantic, but love is in itself is, is a self-sacrifice for the other's benefit. One example of loving people like this would be not engaging in immoral sexual behavior with them. So, they love each other, turns out to be a really good reason why they should not engage in immoral sexual behavior together. So, another point I want to make on this is, does love, is there, is it possible for love itself to make wicked things good? Is that possible? Now this is goes right up against Hollywood and their typical <laughs> portrayals of love and the and the types of things you find yourself rooting for people that are actually doing very wrong things because they're, you know, that's the that's the way it's presented. But the scripture says love does not rejoice in iniquity. And I would say not only does love not make sin okay, real love does not endorse sin for two specific reasons. One, sin hurts the people who do it and hurts the very person that you purport to love while you're doing it. You're injuring them in that. That act is not love because it's sin against them. That's, that, that is not a loving part of that relationship. Number two, when I sin, I fail to love God. And that is my chief calling in life. Love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then love my neighbor as myself. So love of my neighbor does not give me motive to then go against the love of of God. It's just such confusion. In fact, In domestic violence counseling, which is something I do uh, on a weekly basis, and we have that ministry here at the church, um, we talk frequently about something we call love confusion, because one one of the most difficult things to do when you see a couple who has a cycle of violence going on, where it's real strong violence and really bad behavior going on, is getting them to the point where they realize this isn't love, because it has the feelings of love, but without having the qualities of love. We call it love confusion. It's a common term we use in the in the uh, in the program. And there's a reason for that because it is quite confusing. These intense emotions, they seem like love, but it is not what the Bible describes as love. and it is not probably what onlookers into that relationship would go, yeah, that's love. So these particular acts, and notice when we we're against homosexual behavior, we're not ta- we're not I'm not against two guys holding hands. That's a, a, a culturally, it's a strange thing in America, but it's not in and of itself, something's, that something's wrong with it. It's against the physical plumbing issues of two men being in bed together and inserting parts of bodies and where they don't belong. If you understand what is actually in question here, it's clearly not a loving thing. So love does not make things okay. <laughs> love, does, does love make adultery okay? Ask anyone who's ever been cheated on if love made that adultery okay. Does love make incest okay? What if I really love someone so I choose to kidnap them? What if I really love someone and they want me to kidnap them but they're, they're like 17 and not 18 and so that I kidnap them? It, but we love each other so it's okay, right? No, of course not. Does love make lying or fornication or premarital sex okay? Does love do any of these things? No, of course not. Love is not the condition that makes otherwise wrong things okay. That's nowhere in the moral, in the Christian worldview, is this out there. And and certainly, it's like, you rob banks? Yeah, but you don't understand. I love to rob banks. (laughs) Oh, well, no, if it's love, then it's okay. This is an unlivable, another unlivable standard. Love doesn't make these things okay. What they'll do is they'll create a false dichotomy between love and lust. Like either you love each other or you lust for each other. But in reality, again, that's describing um, love as being sex with good intentions and lust as being sex with bad intentions, which is completely confusing and, and not accurate. You can love somebody and have lust for them you can lust them only and love for them only or have, or both, or perhaps you really do care for someone and yet you have lust, just plain desire for them. And for that very reason, again, you distance yourself from them because of your actual care for them. This, anyway, life's a little bit more complicated than that, false dichotomy. Um, The next thing I want to deal with is the slogan that two consenting adults makes it okay. As long as they consent and as long as they're adults, whatever they do is totally fine is adult consent all that really matters when it comes to the morality of what people do? Can two consenting adults say anything they do is therefore morally good? Because we're not arguing that it should be uh, banned. We're arguing that it's not morally good. It's morally bad. What if they gather together and they both consent as adults to stand around and blaspheme God for three hours straight? Does it therefore make, Hey, stop that. You're blaspheming the Lord. You're bringing judgment down on yourself. Stop that. Oh, but we're both consenting adults. It's, a, it's irrational. You, where, where does this become okay? It's not consent that makes evil good. It's the lack of consent that makes a good thing evil. That's why sex in marriage could be a wonderful thing, but rape in marriage, which does happen, is a horrible thing. It took a good thing and made it bad because of the lack of consent but you can't, flip, you can't flip it and have consent make something bad into something good. It's really the other way around. It doesn't make bad things good, it just makes good things bad. It's just like poop. It just makes good things bad, <laughs> it doesn't make anything good. <laughs> That's the lack of consent. Um, what if two people get together, two adults, they agree together as consenting adults to commit adultery, does that make that adultery okay? No, of course not, of course not. What if um, there's three consenting adults and the, the original spouse says it's okay for you two to sleep together and commit this adultery. Does that make it morally good? No, this is, this is morally wrong. Just because you consent doesn't make it okay. What if they consent together to commit suicide? Two consenting adults jump off a bridge together. Does that make it morally good? This should be an easy question, right? This is, no, that does not make it morally good. However, you take the consent away, now you have what's called murder. So now it's it's even worse. Now you've just added poop, you know, to something that already stunk. If two consenting people get together to use meth or to to, to write out hate notes about everyone they know but not send them, this does not make it okay. It does not make it morally good. This is, basically, this is humanism in disguise. Humanism that man is the measure of all things, or to put it another way, that we can invent our own morality for our own convenience, just invent it, therefore now it's morally true. Like we're making up house rules and monopoly. But that's not how morality works. It's either true or, it's, or, or there is no morality, but you don't get to invent it on your own. That is one of the most, it's, it's a bankrupt system to think you can invent morality. Moral relativism, well, I'll talk about that some other day, but basically every argument for moral relativism is itself self refuting. It's so philosophically bankrupt. Um, but yet, yeah, that's what this is it's a moral relativist view. God's consent is what matters. Morality is basically asking God for his consent on the things I'm doing. I obviously consent to do everything I do. (laughs) I do it. Morality is saying, Lord, what about you? What about you? Um, Here's another one that we hear, and I'm going to put it in the words that I've heard it. And even, even since I started doing this video series on YouTube, I've already been called this in this brief period of time. You are a bigot and a homophobe. Those are the words that I've heard used. One of two things is happening here when someone accuses someone of being a bigot or a homophobe. One, either they are a bigot and a homophobe, which is possible. They have extreme hatred towards gay people and they want them to suffer and they don't love them. There's no compassion or concern or anything like that. It's just, just in which case they are a bigot and a homophobe. Or the other thing, They're not, and they're being falsely accused of being a bigot and a homophobe. Now, this is more likely for those who are bothering to sit and watch through and and listen to this teaching. You're probably not coming to this as as a bigot and a homophobe because those people tend to not even want to think about the issues, (laughs) about any issues for that matter. But by this definition that everyone who's opposed to same sex relationships is therefore automatically a hater and an evil person and a bigot and a homophobe by their definition, God is therefore a bigot and a homophobe because anybody who just doesn't fully approve of it is automatically evil. And they by that definition, you're making God out to be evil because he doesn't approve of it. To which they may respond, oh, God does approve of it, except then you're no longer a Christian. So, so you can say that, but you've invented your own God, but you cannot take the God of the Bible and say this about him. You think the God of the Bible is a bigot and a homophobe, and some people do. But the least they could do is at least realize where their logic leads them. You're rejecting Christianity, you're rejecting God, You. If, if you believe that those who come against you in this area are therefore bigots and homophobes. Now, here's the response that I think I would give if I couldn't reason with the person, especially if I was in public and others are listening. I think I would respond to them by saying, you're a bully. You're a bully. I can't believe you said that about me. Since they're on the realm of emotions and accusations, I think this might be the thing that actually re- they respond to. So they say, what do you mean? And you say, well, do you think incest is wrong? And then they say, yes. And you go, you're a bigot and an (laughs) incest-phobe. To which they respond, no, I'm not. And you go, yes, you are. You're such a hater. Why don't you just admit it? Just admit how much you hate people who do incest. Well, I don't hate them. I just think it's wrong. Oh, so now you accept that category of belief, you know, where you just disapprove of something without hating the person who's doing it. This has just been a, a brainwashing effort of, of, of the, the pro-gay agenda, not necessarily gay people. I don't think they've all conspired to, but there's certain watchdog groups that have tried to promote this idea that everyone who's opposed to homosexuality is these things. Um, so yeah, the next one is pretty tough, actually. Um, you're the reason why so many gays commit suicide. To which my heart sinks, but I also have to say, I respond, me, really, like I am. I know I've counseled people away from suicide multiple times. I've met with two people in the last week and a half. I've never had anyone that I'm aware of commit suicide because of me. I have had people that are alive today. And I know that I got to be some part of that, but really I'm the reason so many commit suicide. They're implying that just disapproval again is therefore hatred of the person and your hate is causing them to commit suicide. Now I want to make a couple points about this. Most of the time what will happen next is you'll get examples of horrible ungodly behavior towards an LGBT person, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual person and then how they subsequently committed suicide. But in every example I've ever heard personally, the behavior that was done against them was not anything I would ever do. And it was behavior that all of us would most, most of us at least would say unanimously, that is horrible. Now, if I would never do it and I would disapprove of it, then why am I being blamed for it? (coughs) It's just, it's like saying that everyone who's German is a Nazi, you know, and, 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 and my, my wife's got German blood, and I said, okay, well, you're a Nazi now. <laughs> it's unfair to lump me in with people who do things I disapprove of, I preach against, and I would never do. Really, the issue here is, and those stories that you've heard in the news and things like that, where horrible things happen to this individual, then they committed suicide, what happened to them was major bullying and cruelty and meanness, which we all disapprove of. So what's the real issue is bullying, meanness and disapproval, Uh, but not disapproval of homosexual behavior, but rather the way people were handling and bullying and coming against them. And I imagine the people who came against them for that behavior would come against them for all sorts of other things too, because they're just jerks. So it's really a case for not being a jerk, which I, I think is a good thing to try to not be. So we all agree, don't be a bully, bullying increases people's difficulties in life and, and it is a contributor towards suicide. But let me add some other interesting facts. Um, a homosexual person who's engaging in this, in, in what is no longer just a sin, but has now become a lifestyle, when you take a sin and turn it into a lifestyle, um, their struggle with sin may well factor into an increased suicide rate, which there is. But also high rates of depression And romantic relationship problems right before episodes of suicide are very common amongst gay people, meaning much more common than bullying are relationship issues and depressive episodes. And I don't mean I'm down. I mean like clinical depression, which is a different thing than just feeling down. Can I also say Judas committed suicide? Do we blame Jesus? Is it possible that Jesus could have said something to stop him? Absolutely. He might have been able to talk him out of it. Did God know Judas was going to commit suicide? Yeah. Do we therefore shift the blame onto Jesus? Say, Jesus, your unlivable standards are why this happened. You could have explained to him a couple things. That would have been helpful. You could have pulled him aside and said, Judas, you got a money problem. You're stealing, and I know it. But I love you, and I want you to know I affirm you. He could have done these things potentially, and maybe Judas wouldn't have committed suicide. Do we blame Jesus, well, why don't we? Well, some people in society want to blame everyone else whenever someone commits suicide. I've known families who, after someone commits suicide, are utterly wrecked and devastated because of it. The first thing that happens is blame. This is my fault. This is your fault. That sort of thing. And that's a natural thing when there's a death in the family. It's one, there's always someone in the room who just immediately starts putting out the blame which in my opinion, it's not, it's not important right now. (laughs) Right now, let's just, let's just, let's just breathe and grieve and cry and whatever needs to be done here and pray and stuff. But, um, but that is unfortunately something that happens a lot, but I think it's unfair to blame all of society when somebody kills themselves. And there are situations where society or individuals, I should say, in society contributed to this person committing suicide, but it, but it was the person who committed suicide. It wasn't murder. It was suicide. And there is a difference. There is a difference. So I'm not, I'm not absolving everyone of any guilt, but there is a big difference and we should acknowledge it. One study compared the suicides of gay men with the suicides of straight men, and they found that they had something in common. Certain things, there's three things, drinking, substance abuse, and diagnosed psychiatric problems were prevalent amongst all of those suicides, meaning that possibly common factors are actually leading to these, these suicides. Another study published in the American Association for Suicidology said, it is concluded that this study finds no evidence that suicide is a common characteristic of gay youth, meaning that people are inflating the numbers, or that when suicide does occur among gay teenagers, that it is a direct consequence of stigmatization or lack of support. Saying that they're simply saying, we don't, we don't, we think that, uh, yes, it happens for sure. We, we know stories but they're the anomaly rather than the regular and so yeah Yeah. And what's happening here is this whole thing about you're the reason why gays commit suicide is it's, it's assuming that by disapproving of the behavior, I would therefore f- for be hateful. And there are those who who would hear me speaking now and they think secretly, Mike, you hate gay people. You're just trying to pretend you don't. This is all part of a well-crafted persona and you're, you don't really care about gay people or you wouldn't really love them or hug them or spend time with them or pray for them or anything like that. And to that, I can say nothing I can say will undo the evil picture you've painted of me. There's just nothing I can say because you're a bigot. There's nothing I can say. And so I'm going to move on. (laughs) Um, you justify violence against gay people is a similar accusation, but it's something that we've heard is these attitudes you have are what justify violence, gay bashing and things like that. To which I would respond, no, I really don't. To which they would respond, yes, you do. And I'd say, no, I don't. And they'd say, I'm rubber, you're glue. (laughs) And eventually we realized that it's just a baseless accusation. Like, what do I do that justifies this? Um, I mean, you're the villain in this scenario. You justify violence against gay people. But yet you say the words, I do not justify violence. against. I I disapprove of violence against people because of their sexual orientation, you know, or whatever they want to claim it is, or because of their sexual behavior. I disapprove of this. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you like, I, I, tell, I mean if Hitler walked in the room and I ran across the room and just punched him right in the nose they'd still think I was the bad guy at this point there's just nothing I can do to convince you otherwise it's, just, I've been, it's called an ad hominem attack it means to the man and usually this is what happens when I cannot take on your arguments I take on you I can't take on your arguments, but you know what? You got dumb hair and you got big, ugly toes and you're mean and you're, and you're, you're, you're a horrible person. And I, and you should, you should stop talking ever, ever again. And this is just an ad hominem. It's just an. So there's, there is a response to this. It's kind of snarky, but I'll just give it to you guys. Here's one. You justify violence against gay people. You could turn to this individual and say, well, you justify the burning of churches and the persecuting of Christians. And they go, no, I don't. And you go, yes, you do. And it's pretty much just, it's a baseless argument with a, with a response of a baseless argument for the goal of when you see the shoe on the other foot, perhaps you'll recognize what you're, what you're doing is hypocritical and, and uh, unfounded. Um, another um, statement we sometimes hear is you're on the wrong side of history. Um, I've, have, have anybody heard that before? I know I haven't had people say this one to me, but I've heard it said as I was studying for this enough that I thought I'll mention it. You're on the wrong side of history, like the church always is. Now this is sort of a revisionist view of history where the church is the inevitable bad guy and it's secular humanists who are like slowly dragging the church from darkness into light over the course of centuries. It's reinforced by Hollywood videos and movies where they go back in time and they have a dramatization of history or even a fabrication. And the lead character is always somebody with 21st century ideals. And like, I mean, look at the, even the Disney characters, like they go, you go back in time, you're in like feudal Japan and yet they're Democrats, you know I mean? They're, they're like progressive liberals. That's their perspective on everything. And they're slowly trying to pull everyone out of the dark. Well, this is just ridiculous. And it's not historically true. If I can point out a couple specific myths, the church has not been utterly stupid for its history slowly drugged to the light by secular scientists. The church did not believe the world was flat when Columbus set sail. The church did not believe it. Nobody thought the world was flat. when They did not think he would fall off the edge of the earth. Scientists in the Academy of Science said, hey, we think the earth is bigger than you think it is, Columbus, and you're not going to make the voyage all the way to India. They were right. They just didn't happen to know there was a continent he ran into, lucky for him. <laughs> Which is why he called them Indians. Right? I mean, but this was, this was understood. It was known for hundreds of years, and it was well accepted, and it was not a problem. Some people say, well, Galileo, he, you know, Galileo um, discovered that the, uh, the Earth was, was not the center of the solar system, and the universe wasn't all revolving around a, a still Earth that was unmovable, the church thought that the earth didn't move. But, but this is actually not true. It was Copernicus, not Galileo, that said things that overturned the view of a helio uh, or a, of a, uh, excuse me, an, an earth centric view of the galaxy of the solar system of, of everything they saw. And um, it was actually for a different reason that Galileo got in trouble. Galileo was not put in, 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 uh, in jail and persecuted, unlike some of the dramatization show, because he said that the earth spun and went around the sun. He was put in jail because he wrote a work called On the Revolution of the Heavenly Sphere. So it did talk about this sort of thing. And um, in it, he put an argument from a fool, uh, in, in the mouth of a fool, that was from Pope Ur- the Pope of the time, Pope Urban VIII. So Pope Urban had said something and he took his words, the Pope's words, and put them in the fool's mouth in his story. So the Pope got greatly offended and put him in jail. He himself believed that he had, in fact, I'll quote it to you. In the end, Galileo was convinced the reason for his trouble was making fun of his holiness, (laughs) not the issue of the earth moving. It's just a revisionist view of history that paints religious people as these backwoods, like don't have a clue and stuff like that. Um, It's really not the case. There's a lot of data I could give you on that, but I want to move forward. Yeah, that's really not the case. It's really not the case. Um, So we're on the wrong side of history. It's actually, moral reform has almost always been preceded by believers who have biblically founded values pushing forward moral reform. Against slavery, against various other atrocities. So uh, one more slogan. Telling same-sex couples that they can't marry is the same as telling interracial couples that they can't marry. Um, this, the first time I heard it, I just stuttered. I was like, uh, and I had to think for a moment. And that's what these slogans are meant to do is to get you just to be like kind of thrown off, off your pace and you have to consider them. But it's saying that homosexual relationships are parallel to, to interracial relationships. But this is wrong. Racism is a bias based on a non-difference or differences that are so trivial, like, like skin tone, that are so trivial as to be completely unimportant and unrelated to the conclusions of racism. That makes sense, right? I mean, we all agree on that. However, gender differences are massive and they give us really good reasons to think that there's a big difference between a man and a woman and a woman and a woman or a man and a man. The most obvious one being you can't have children. Like, not because you're infertile, You're fertile, you're just, you're doing it wrong. Like you can't have children like this. You're not designed this way. Whereas interracial couples certainly can You know, and do, and make the cutest babies we've ever seen. (laughs) So um, the purpose here to make this parallel is to to try to get the world to see um, anyone who's opposed to same-sex marriage or um, homosexual behavior as a racist. That's the real goal here. Even though it's not a parallel, it's not philosophically sound to say it. Thank you for thinking biblically with me today. I'm Mike Winger. And next time we will deal with the secular case against homosexual behavior. This message will include health statistics from the Center for Disease Control and a whole line of reasoning to show why, if we only consider pragmatic and societal health issues, we are well justified in not endorsing homosexual behavior.